Good morning. Let's turn our attention to God's word in Nehemiah 6, 1 through 14. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors in the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, come and let us meet together at Hekephorim in the plain of Ono, but they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Samballot for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him saying, no such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking, their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. Now when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehedabel, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin, and so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, O oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. This is the word of the Lord. most disheartening things in the Christian life is when you see a Christian brother or sister fall, when you see someone that's, that's walking with the Lord faithfully and then they fall away, they fall into sin, they, they go away from their faith, they go away from loving the Lord. It's even more disheartening when you see this happen to a Christian leader, someone you trusted, you learned from, that you really looked up to fell away from the Lord, let you down. You know, I actually count it as a, a grace in my life that as a young man, people that I really admired in the Christian faith fell away, fell into sin. Uh, I, I count it as a grace, not for their sake, but just to be warned. And for me as a young man to have to deal with that and have to process my own 
faith in, in a time and in a season of my life when, when many people around me were falling away from the Lord. And now as a pastor, it's so hard for me to see when, when folks in my church aren't faithfully following the Lord. It's, it's the most disheartening thing to me. I, when I was younger as a pastor, if somebody said, what's most discouraging to you? Uh, I would have said, well, it's critique, right? You know, people are always critiquing, saying I'm a, not a good leader, not a good preacher, I got this wrong, or I'm not doing this right. I've gotten used to their critique, right? I, it's fine. It doesn't bother me as much anymore. But what really hurts me now, what really makes me toss and turn, what really keeps me up is when, is when I see you fall away, not follow the Lord, because we love you guys. We, we pray for you. We try to teach you. We try to serve you. And I, I speak for all of our pastors, all of our elders. We, we want to see you follow Jesus faithfully. And, and when we see you fall in love with other things, it, it breaks my heart. You know, I, I can really identify with the story of the rich young ruler. Uh, you know that story. Um, there's a rich young man, he comes to Jesus, and, and it, it seems like he wants to follow Jesus. He says, you know, like, what, what do I do to inherit eternal life? And he says, Jesus says, well, you know, you kept the commandments. And the rich young man says, yes, I've kept the commandments. And, uh, and Jesus says, well, here's one more thing. And, and the Bible says this. It says, looking at him, Jesus loved him and said, if you really desire to know God, then sell all you possess and give it to the poor. But as you catch that, Jesus says, it says, looking at him, Jesus loved him, and he said this to him. And of course, the young man walked away. And I think that we can read into that, you know, real love oftentimes implies a hard truth, having to hear something that you knew you wouldn't want to hear, but I identify, I think about Jesus in the moment that this young man, you know, actually in the New Testament, it never says that Jesus loved anyone. Now we know that Jesus loves us, but it never really talks about that except for this story. Jesus looked at him and he loved him and the man walked away. You know, I, I don't think I really understood that until I became a pastor, maybe until I became a parent, Right? When someone that you deeply love won't listen to you, won't, won't follow the advice. And so, if anything, I think this sermon today is a plea from me to you to stay faithful to the Lord, to continue to follow the Lord faithfully, to, to not be another example of a Christian who fell away, to not be someone who has no faith, but to stay faithful even to the end. Because on the other side of the coin, when you see someone who follows the Lord faithfully, it's incredibly encouraging. When you see someone that finishes the race, that stayed faithful to the Lord, even through hardship, even in the most difficult things, when you see that, it's, it's enormously encouraging, even if the person didn't have like this super fruitful life, just faithfulness. Paige and I got to go... Um, I had to do this trip in the north this week, and we were going through Northampton, Massachusetts, which is where Jonathan Edwards had his preaching ministry. But in Northampton, we stopped there. In Northampton, 
there's a gravesite, and it's not an important gravesite. It's, it's, there's nothing special about it. It's just a little grave that you'd never even notice, but it's, a, it's the grave of David Brainerd. I actually mentioned David Brainerd a few weeks ago. He was a very early missionary in the 18th century, and it, he didn't even have that great of a missionary career. <laughs> it's not like he like won all these people to the Lord. He was just a faithful guy to try to go and minister to the Mohican and Delaware Indians in his day, people that had no access to the gospel. And he was just a guy that loved Jesus and that was faithful to his Lord all the way to the end. He ended up dying of tuberculosis. His dying words were this. I've received all from my God. Oh, that I could return my all to God. Surely God is worthy of my highest affection and most devout adoration. He is infinitely worthy that I should make him my last end and live forever to him. And I'll just be honest, seeing Brainerd's grave this week really fired me up. It's not a big site. There's nothing important about it. You wouldn't even know it's there. It's hard to find. There's no like map of the cemetery. You have to like really go digging for it. I mean, this is, this is not like a super important guy in history, but seeing it so fired me up because he impacted so many people. His faithfulness impacted so many people. And God used the faithfulness of this one little guy to really start a movement. And, and most of us don't even really know about him. And, and, and the reason it fired me up is because I just thought about you guys. I said, man, man, if we could just be, if Christ's covenant could just be faithful, not notorious, right? Not well-known, not necessarily big, not whatever. It's just, just faithful to the Lord. It's just people that, 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 that God would say, they loved me. They were faithful to me. What could the Lord do to our little church? And so if, if anything today is that, it is this call to faithfulness to the Lord, faithfulness in what God has called us to do, faithfulness to follow the Lord. And, and let me hear me say this, like it's hard. We live in a hard day. We live in a polarizing time. We live in a day where there's opposition. We live in a day where there's incredible comforts that can pull us away, incredible distractions it's hard to be faithful to the great commandment to love others, especially when they don't recognize that love and never thank you for it. It's hard to be faithful to the great commission to be committed to making disciples, especially when people think the things that you believe are crazy. Faithfulness to the Lord is hard. It's hard in a normal time, and it's especially hard in a time of opposition, which, which is why I think that this passage and this whole really study of Nehemiah is so encouraging there's a few things I want to look at with you in these first few verses of chapter 6 today. The first is the temptation of relief. These three temptations that Nehemiah faces. The temptation of relief, the temptation of power, and the temptation of importance. So how about the temptation of relief? Well, just to catch us up here. If you're kind of new to this study, if you're just catching up with us, we're in what's called the post-exilic time of the Old Testament Israel, the people of Israel, they had been defeated by the Babylonians, taken away from their homeland. The temple, the city of Jerusalem was all destroyed. They were in captivity in Babylon for about 70 years. And then the Persians took over the Babylonians and the Persians allowed the people of Israel to go back. 
They begin reestablishing themselves in their homeland to rebuild their temple, to rebuild their wall. And, and really what this, this book is, Ezra Nehemiah, which I, as I've been saying, really should be understood as really one book. Really what Ezra Nehemiah is, is the story of this. It's the story of the reestablishment of the people of Israel. First Zerubbabel goes back and rebuilds the temple. Then Ezra goes back and reestablishes the law, the sign of God's character. And here's Nehemiah rebuilding Jerusalem, rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, which is, is really just the sign of God's kingdom. It can't be overstated how significant Jerusalem is as a symbol to the people of God. And, and as we've been looking at this passage in this book, uh, over these past many weeks, you have seen there have been many dangers, toils, and snares along the way. Nehemiah has had to endure difficulty from the outside, difficulty from the inside. They're always under attack. They're having to fend off these enemy nations around them with swords while they build. There's division inside. And, and amazingly, Nehemiah has just done this incredible job leading the people. God had given his people, this incredible mediator, Nehemiah. And through his obedience and through his faithfulness, this wall is being built. The, the kingdom is being reestablished. So where we pick up in chapter six, it's, we're getting toward the end. The wall's almost complete. Look at verse one again. It says, when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall, there was no breach left in it, meaning that all, the whole wall was, was done. There was no empty slot. And he says, although at that time I'd not yet set up the doors and the gates. So all that's left is hang the doors and the gates. And this wall is done. Jerusalem is fortified. And so these enemy nations, now keep in mind, they're all under Persian rule at this time, but they're all vying for authority within Persian rule or underneath Persian rule. All these nations want to be the big dog of those that have been captured by the Persians. And here's Jerusalem. They were nothing. Here's the people of Judah. They were nothing. They were, they were slaves in Babylon. And now they're back. And now they have a fortified wall. Now they have all this significance. They've done this amazing thing, even though they've always been over, under attack. And so all of these enemies say, we've missed our chance. What are we going to do now? And they try one last thing. They say, well, we've got to take down Nehemiah. If we strike the shepherd, maybe the sheep will disperse. So verse 2, Sanballat and Gershom sent to me saying, come, let us meet together at Hakrafim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, I'm doing a great work. I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way. And I answered them in the same manner. So this is what happened. These rulers around them, they say, come down, Nehemiah. Let's meet in the plain of Ono. The plain of Ono is, is east of Jerusalem toward the sea. You can still go to this plain today. And Nehemiah has a hunch. Okay, this is not good. These people intend to do me harm. They're trying to pull me away from the fortified city and take me out. But they, they sent him this word under the banner of truce. They, they, they're saying to him, look, Nehemiah, we realize you're going to be here now. 
We realize you've established yourself here now. Let's have a conversation. Let's be allies. Let's come to a common understanding on things. And the reason that I, I call this the temptation of relief is if you put yourself in Nehemiah's shoes here, it's an enticing offer, right? These people have been attacking you, and now they're coming and saying, hey, we want, we want to be your friend. Let's get along. Let's figure out how we can kind of strengthen one another. Let's have a council meeting together. Let's have fellowship together. Let's have a council of governors it's kind of an enticing offer. And, and again, if, if they would have come to it just one time and said this, then maybe you could be like, hold on, this is just a trick. But they come four times. Four times they come to him and say, come on, let's, let's meet together. Come on, Nehemiah. You could begin to think that Nehemiah could say, you know what? This is probably a good thing to do. They really do want to meet with me. I'm finally getting the recognition I deserve. But four times, I love the way he answers. He says, I am doing the great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? He knows what God has called him to. He doesn't take the bait. He doesn't fall to the temptation of relief. He stays focused on the task that the Lord has given him. And I think this is a great warning for us. It's not that in the Christian life, you never need rest. Of course, God has designed rest as part of the rhythm of the Christian life. So don't mishear the temptation of relief. The temptation of relief is this, for you and for me. When the Lord starts to use you, when you start to grow in your Christian faith, when you start to mature in your Christian faith. <laughs> it's very easy to stop doing the things that the Lord has used to mature you. When, when the Lord begins to use your life, when, when the Lord begins to, to show himself through you, when you begin to understand his word, when, when you start advancing in the Christian life, it's, it's very easy to forsake just basic Christian disciplines. And it's very easy to lose your first love. It's easy to stop praying. It's easy to stop reading your Bible. It's easier to forsake Christian community. I see this in Christians all the time. Christians that I know that the Lord has used. I know that they've been matured and they, they begin giving up on just basic disciplines. You know, we hold these covenant disciplines out to you all the time. I think we have the slide here. You've seen this wheel. We talk about it at First Sunday. I guess maybe the image didn't make the slide. But the wheel, and we have all of these corporate disciplines that we talk about. Corporate worship being one. I can't tell you how many times I see Christians not making this a priority. There's always something that comes up. They need the relief from it, right? There's something more important in their life going on. I could really use this Sunday morning off or away. Is this a priority to you? To gather with the saints, it's a command of the Lord. Don't, don't, don't reprieve this in your life. Another one we talk about is family worship. Again, it's hard to make this a priority. Are you praying together as a family? Are you looking at God's word together as a family? Here's a question. What are your family activities? What are your family activities? And do any of them reflect God as the center of your home? 
There's a lot of family. I know a lot of families that have activities that are very firm. They never take relief from that. But when it comes to having the Lord as the center of your home, prayer together, Bible study together, serving the Lord together, these are things that people easily leave aside. They, they easily come down off of the wall to go into the Valley of Ono. How about personal devotion? This is another covenant community, covenant commitment that we make. Are you regularly taking time to commune with the Lord? Again, is this an, a rhythm in your life? Supporting the church, are you generous to the work of the Lord? Are you honoring the Lord with your wealth? Again, I, I know this can be a struggle, but what a beautiful act of worship to just say, God has given me everything. I will honor him with a part of what he has given me to see that his work and his ministry goes forward. Another one we talk about is relational discipleship. Are you regularly communing with a, a group of believers that's focused on disciple making? Do you have a discipleship focused group of people that you're in relationship with? Is this a part of your life? This is something that we urge for all of our members to have a community group, to have a, a group of people that you're studying God's Word with. And again, this, this looks in a lot of different ways. I mean, some people say, my, my group, this is like my main group of friends and I'm with them all the time. Not all of our groups are like that, right? We have a lot of people that say, well, you know, I have this kind of group of friends, but, but this group is just a group of believers that I regularly commune with because this is an important discipline in the Christian life. Serving the church, or giving any time to practically meet the needs of one another, engaged in ministry at all. One thing we talk about is being a kingdom ambassador. Do you have a regular rhythm of outward facing relationships? Are you regularly praying for people that don't know the Lord to come to know the Lord? Is there any sort of rhythm of engaging people that don't know the Lord toward the things of the Lord in your life? Are you blessing the city? Are you engaged in any ministry around our city? Do you, here, here's the question on this one. Do you give more to the community or you take more from the community? That's really what Bless the City is all about. Are you the kind of person that leverages your life toward the community or are you the kind of person that tries to leverage the community toward yourself? And then last is reaching the world. Are you engaged in reaching the world for Christ? Do you have any sort of habit of mission, of going on mission, of praying for missionaries, of praying for gospel days? Do you have any habit of mission? That's a question I want to ask you. Any habit of mission in your life? Any, any habit of mission toward the fulfillment of the Great Commission? So these are, these are kind of our nine covenant commitments that we ask for all of our members. And, and they're not just this arbitrary covenant. We, we ask these things of you because we believe that this is a pathway for discipleship. That these are the kinds of rhythms that are true of the Christian life that will keep you on the wall. That will keep you from being pulled away down to the valley where your faith can be destroyed. These will keep you about the things of the Lord and the work of the Lord. They'll help you stay the course. We don't want you to be another example of someone who lost their way, of someone who quit following the Lord. What we so desire for you is to be people who one day, on the last day, the only day that really matters to be the kind of people who stand before God and hear, well done. Well done, faithful servant. 
The second thing that comes along in this passage is the temptation of power. Look at verse 5. This is in the same way Sanballat for the fifth time. I mean, you got to admire this guy's persistence. I mean, you can probably learn a lot about persistence from Sanballat. For the fifth time, he sent his servant in an open letter in hand, and it was written, it is reported among the nations. And Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That's why you're building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you've also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. Now the king, this is Artaxerxes. Now the king Artaxerxes will hear these reports. So now let us come and take counsel together. You hear what he's saying here? He's saying, look, there's all these reports. You've done this great thing. Now Artaxerxes is going to get nervous and he's going to come attack you. Do you think you're this king now? Do you think that... that Israel is this independent nation. Now, of course, this doesn't consider what we read earlier in the passage that in Nehemiah and Artaxerxes actually have an amazing relationship with one another. He used to be a part of Artaxerxes' household. He served him faithfully. Artaxerxes uh, not only protected this operation, but actually supplied this operation. But it's an interesting appeal Nehemiah has done an amazing job. He's built this wall. He's unified the people. Nehemiah is being celebrated. Everybody is kind of amazed at what he has done. And, and, and the Hebrew people knew that they weren't supposed to be under Persian rule. The Hebrew people knew that they were God's chosen people. They were supposed to be their own nation. They were supposed to have their own king. And it would have been very easy for Nehemiah in this moment to say, yeah, I'm the guy that we've been waiting for. If I would have been in charge, we wouldn't have gotten into this mess. If I would have been in charge, we would never have fallen away. The Babylonians would have never been able to take over us. The kingdom would have never divided. I have been faithful. I am the rightful king. It would have been easy for him in this moment of triumph to be overcome. But he's not. He doesn't fall into the temptation of power. Look at verse 8. He says, Then I sent to him, saying, No such thing you've said has been done. You're inventing them out of your own mind. For they just wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will be done. But now, and I love this. This is such a simple statement, such a powerful statement. Now, oh God, strengthen my hands. Where, where is Nehemiah's confidence in all of this? It's in the Lord. God make me strong. His confidence is in the Lord. He is not swept away by his own power. He does not fall into the trap. He knows who he is and he knows who God is. And again, once again, we can learn a lot from this because I've seen so many that God has begun to use that are incredibly talented people that have fallen in love with themselves. They've lost confidence in the Lord and they've gained only confidence in themselves. This temptation of power is strong and it will get you. 
It's everywhere around you. It will grab you. You know, I always say, you know, you know where your faith is? Do you know what your faith is in? And I always say this, your faith is in whatever comes to your mind when you are personally offended. When someone offends you, when someone speaks ill of you, when someone cuts you off in traffic, it's that justifying thought that enters your head in that moment. Someone offends you, someone speaks ill of you, and that, that, that next thought that comes to your mind, like, do they know who I am? Do they know what job I have? Do they know how much money I have? Do they know who I'm friends with? If they did, they'd never say this about me. It's that thing that flexes in your mind, right? That tells you everything you need to know about where your faith lies. And I just want you to hear this. If your faith is in these other things that, that give you a sense of power and authority, that give you a sense of triumph, those things can easily become and I'll just use this word, a power-promising idol. A power-promising idol. And, and power-promising idols, idols that promise power, idols that promise authority, idols that say that you're somebody, that nobody can speak to you this way, that you do deserve accolades, that you do deserve praise, that you do deserve that office that you thought you always were supposed to have. Power-promising idols are powerful. They'll grab you. And it's very easy in a world of power-promising idols to give yourselves to them and not to the Lord. And power-promising idols are sneaky. They, they, they come oftentimes in the name of the Lord. A lot of self-promotion is done in the name of Jesus. But it's not for Jesus. It's just the idol of promotion. It's the idol of notoriety that's done in the name of Jesus. It's a sneaky idol. A lot of people give themselves to work. Work becomes an idol because, well, I'm generous with what I earn. And, and it's very easy for these idols to kind of justify themselves. A lot of people find their identity in a house because we're going to use this house for ministry, right? <laughs> Power promising idols are sneaky. They'll get you. They'll grab you. And if you're not careful... Your confidence will be in these other things that promise so much. You'll come off the wall. You won't stay focused on who the Lord's called you to be and what the Lord has called you to do. But finally, the temptation of importance. So Tobiah and Sanballat, <laughs> they realize, okay, he's not listening. It's not working. No one is uh, getting through to him. He's so focused on the Lord here. And so they say, well, maybe we can get an insider. And so they find this Jew named Shemaiah. And they say, well, maybe if one of Nehemiah's own comes to him and scares, scares him a little bit, we can get him to do something. And so Shemaiah, of course, comes to him and he says, look, they're coming. They're going to kill you. They're going to come by night. Hide in the temple and they won't be able to get to you there. Hide in the temple and they won't be able to get to you there. But of course, Nehemiah sees right through it. I love how he responds. He says, there's such a man as I run away. But I love this. He says, and what man such as I, a public officer, not a priest, this is what he's saying. He says, I'm not a priest. 
I'm not a man of the temple. I'm a faithful Jewish man that loves the Lord, but I don't belong in the temple. What man such as I should go to the temple and live? I will not go in. And throughout this whole thing, Nehemiah is wise and shrewd. He's humble. He doesn't fall into this temptation of thinking that he is more than he really is. He knows his chief identity. I want you to hear this. His chief identity is as God's servant. Who is Nehemiah? He's a servant of God. He knows that he's not a priest. He knows that it doesn't matter if he built the wall. It doesn't matter if he saved Jerusalem. He was not allowed to go in the temple. He sees through the scheme. He, he isn't tempted by being important, right? The team is, look, we can't lose you, Nehemiah. There's a safe place. You go into the temple and you will be safe there. And he says, no, I, I am God's servant above all else. I can't help but read this passage and think about the story of Uzziah. You may not know this, but there's, a, there's an amazing little story. It's both in a lot of the stories in First and Second Kings are the same stories in First and Second Chronicles. The Chronicles version of this story has the more detailed version. So I'll, I'll look at some passages there. But it tells the story of Uzziah. Uzziah became the king at 16 years old. And the Bible says that he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. He loved the Lord. He honored the Lord. He became the king when he was 16. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord, and God blessed him. And he did all these amazing things. He defeated the Persian. He defeated the Philippians. He built these towers. I'm sorry, not the Philippians. The Philistines. Not the Persians, not the Philippians. He defeated the Philistines. He, he built all these towers to the Lord. He did these amazing things. God used him in these amazing ways. He became this great king. He became king at 16. And he loved the Lord and God blessed him. But then we read in verse 16, 2 Chronicles 26. It says, but when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord as God. And he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense. He was Uzziah after all, right? He wasn't a priest, but he was Uzziah. He was the king. He beat the Philistines. He built the towers. He, he funded the refurbishment of the temple. He did all of these things. He was Uzziah. Of course he's allowed in the temple. What are you talking about? This is Uzziah. But of course the priests come in. They see him in there and they realize you're not supposed to be in here. They tried to stop him, but he was offended. Verse 19 says, when the priests come in, they try to stop it. It says, Uzziah was angry. Now he had a censer in his hand to burn the incense. You can hear he's burning the incense. He has this censer in his hand. And when he became, and he became angry with the priest, I can almost imagine him waving this censer meant for worship at the priest. Who do you think you are talking to me like that? It says, when he became angry at the priests, Leprosy broke out on his forehead in the presence of the priests in the house of the Lord by the altar of incense. And verse 21 kind of concludes the story. Again, this is from 2 Chronicles 26. And King Uzziah, the 16-year-old wonder boy that became king and did all these great things, King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death. And being a leper, 
He couldn't live in the palace. He lived in a separate house. And he was excluded from the temple. He was excluded from the house of the Lord. It's an amazing story. You, you almost feel like Nehemiah had read that story. We, we know that he probably had. And he was thinking about it when this temptation came to him. But unlike Uzziah, Nehemiah remembers who he is. He remembers that he is a servant of the Lord and he's not swept away by the temptation of importance to think that he is something that he's not. You know, I started this sermon saying this is a plea for faithfulness. <laughs> there, there are many temptations all around you all the time. There, there are many things that want to trip you up. The temptation of relief. Look, corporate worship, you don't need to worry so much about getting there. Personal devotion, look, Eva, you know the Bible. Being a part of a community group, serving in the church, these simple little disciplines that are so good, you, 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 you've done that, right? God's using, you're kind of beyond all that. Beware of the temptation of power. It'll grab you. These, these power-promising idols are around you all the time. The temptation of importance is like, oh, I'm kind of above this, right? I can do this. I'm kind of, I deserve this. Look at how much I've done. Watch out for these things. Don't fall to them. Be the kind of people that stand before God on the last day. And hear the, sir, and hear the words, well done, faithful servant. Now, you might be hearing this and saying to yourself, hold on, Jason. I'm not Nehemiah. There, there, is, there is this sin that so plagues me. I, I, have, I have fallen into relief. You, you enlisted those things, and I'm failing in regular Christian disciplines. I have fallen. I do listen to the power-promising idols I have given up at times. I, I, I do feel like I'm too important for these small things. Good for Nehemiah, but I know that I am not like that. And I would say if that is the moment that God is giving you right now, good for you. You're right. <laughs> these idols do loom large. These temptations are really strong. But the good news for each of us today, just like the people of Israel were able to do more because they had such a faithful mediator, the good news for you and for me is that we have a mediator just like they did. And our mediator is even greater, an even greater Nehemiah has come. And it's Jesus the Lord who faced all of these temptations in an even greater way than Nehemiah. Jesus is not far off. He knows your temptations. He knows your weaknesses. He faced the same ones. When Jesus was in the wilderness, Satan came to him with these same temptations. Jesus had been fasting for 40 days. <laughs> and what did Satan say? Quit the fast. Get some relief. Turn this stone into bread. But Jesus overcame it. 
He didn't sin. He didn't disobey what the Lord had led him to do. He said, no, man cannot live on bread alone. Satan came to him and said, Jesus, show your power. Throw yourself off this temple and allow the angels to save you. And it'll be a big spectacle and everybody will know who you are and everybody will see how powerful you are, Jesus. And Jesus didn't fall to the temptation of power. He said, no, I'm not gonna put, I'm not gonna put God to the test. I'm not gonna disobey what God has called me to do by putting him to the test. Satan said, look, see all that, Jesus? As far as you can see, I'll give it to you if you'll just bow down to me. You'll be so important. <laughs> you'll be able to go wherever you want. You'll, this is yours. You can do whatever you want. You'll, be, you'll have so much importance. And Jesus, of course, said no. The Word of God says to worship and to serve the Lord only. Look, I do fall into the temptation of relief. I do fall into the temptation of power. I do fall into the temptation of importance. But I have a mediator. I have a mediator. I have a savior who never did. I have a savior who in every way, even though he was tempted in every way, just as I am never sinned, he always did what was right. He always followed the way of the Father. And the simple message of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is this. Jesus was willing to take all of his righteousness, his perfect righteousness, his heart that was always in line with the will of the Father. He was willing to take his perfect righteousness and exchange it for all of our unrighteousness. For all of the times that we do fall into these temptations, for all of the times that we do get relief, for all the times we fall away from faith, for all of the times that we're not good and not faithful, Jesus on the cross was willing to say, give your burden to me and I will pay for it. And he did pay for it. He paid for it fully and amazingly taking on the full weight of our sin, taking on the hell that we deserved so that through faith in Him, hear this, you could go free. You wouldn't have to carry that burden of sin. You could follow God, not always having to justify yourself and prove yourself, but you could follow God as His children, as His child, knowing that when He looks at you, He sees the righteousness of Christ, and you're accepted and you're well. And if that's true, if you have such a mediator as Jesus who, who identifies with you, who knows your sin, he, he knows your temptation, he identifies with you and yet loves you enough to give himself for you. If you have a mediator like that, if you have known the freedom that this gospel message gives to you, then, then hear this, you can actually trust God. You can actually know that He actually loves you, that His plans for you are good. They are right. These rhythms of grace that He calls us into are good for you and good for your soul. That the kind of importance and the kind of power that he gives is so much greater than anything this world could promise you or offer you. That this is where rest and peace and freedom is found. You can trust him if you've known the salvation. Have you? <laughs> 
have you? Are you still out there trying to prove yourself? <laughs> Say, look at me. I'm like another Nehemiah here. Or are you someone who's in a point of humility said, I am no Nehemiah. I am, I am a sinner. I have fallen over and over into these temptations, even though I know better. But I believe that God has given me a mediator even greater than Nehemiah. And if I just follow him, and if I just look to him, and if I just obey him, and I just listen to him, I'll be well. I'll be used. I'll find life and joy. And then I actually can hear, not because of what I've done, but because of what Jesus has done. You're good. You're faithful in Christ. Let's pray. Father, give us grace today to hear these words. Father, I thank you that there is even a greater Nehemiah who has overcome all temptation for us on our behalf. And he was willing to take on all of the times that we did not come overcome temptation. All of the times that we were led astray, all of the times we lived for ourselves, all the times that we did not honor you with our lives. Lord, Jesus has overcome that on the cross. He's paid for our sin. And by the power of his resurrection, he offers us life. Father, I pray that today we would take hold of that life. Give us faith to believe these things, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.